What's kind of funny about this scripture, because it starts out in one of the, the very first things that says, whoever does not come to me and does not hate his father. Um, before I thought twice about this, uh, we're getting youth to read scripture in um, 11 o'clock. And I thought, you know what? My daughter hasn't done anything lately. I'll get her to read the scripture. So I asked her to read the scripture. She said yes. And then it hit me that the scripture is actually about someone hating their father. Like, what's that all about? You know, it's like, come on, Bailey. Can you not get that straight? One of my favorite movies is a movie called Christmas Vacation, and it is, uh, it's obviously a Christmas movie, and it's one that I've watched uh, multiple times throughout the years as a child and now as an adult, and uh, it's just kind of nostalgic for me now, and I still think it's funny, and my kids probably don't. I don't even know if they've seen it, but anyway... Um, it's about a guy by the name of Clark W. Griswold, and uh, Clark, Clark Griswold is a guy who goes all out in everything that he does. And so one Christmas, he is wanting to put 25,000 uh, twinkly little lights on his house. As, and so as he's getting the lights out of the garage, he's, he's pulling the lights out of the box, and, and there's a scene where he's kind of, you know, taking the lights out of the box, and he, he pulls up this knot, this light that's kind of tangled, this string of lights that's tangled in a knot. And it's not just a little knot, it's a knot that this, it's this big. He pulls it out, and there's a knot. And in good Clark Griswold fashion, his son is standing next to him. His son's name is Russ. He says, got a little knot here. Here you go, Russ. Why don't you work on this? And he hands it to his son. And then, you know, the scene just shows his son kind of staring at his dad, uh, not knowing what to do. Today's scripture kind of feels like a knot. It's like a big knot, and um, if you think this is a hard text for you to swallow, just be grateful that you don't have to preach on it, because I've been looking at this text for a whole week, uh, trying to soak in what's really going on here. So Jesus, uh, as we have talked about in other weeks, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, he's had his ministry up in Galilee, but now he is traveling to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not just a geographic place to go to. Jerusalem means that he is going to die. Jesus uh, is going to suffer and he's going to die. That is what Jerusalem means for Jesus. Um, Jesus is on a collision course with the religious establishment. And um, he knows that his life is about to end. And so he is getting out every teaching that he can get out. And he is not mincing words. He's not beating around the bush. He is putting it out there as direct as a person can put it out there. There's a big crowd gathering because crowds tend to gather to Jesus. They want to see what he's doing. They want to see the signs and the wonders and all the things that are going on. And as the crowd, it says a large crowd is gathering, he turns to them and he gives them a speech that's somewhat reminiscent of a professor on the first day of law school who looks at the students and says, oh, by the way, 70% of you will not pass this class. 70% of you do not have what it takes. 70% of you don't want it bad enough. 70% of you are not going to be trying hard enough to do that. It, it, it kind of feels like that's what Jesus is doing to the crowd. He's like, hey, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to do some things. It's not as easy as it seems. It seems like Jesus is, is thinning out the herd a little bit instead of trying to get everybody to like him or everybody to vote for him. First thing he says is, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus just say hate? Did that just 
Did, did we hear that right? Whoever does not hate? Is this not the Jesus who said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Is this not the Jesus that says, I love you as God has loved me, I've loved you, therefore you are to love one another? This is how you know that you are to be my disciples, by your love for one another? Isn't Jesus about love? What's this thing with hate? That's a, that's a big ball of, that's a, that's a knot in and of itself. What's Jesus saying here? This language is one of the, the many ways that Jesus, throughout the, down the stretch of Luke, uses hyperbole as a way to shock people. There, there's no time to, to lay it out there softly. He, he puts it out there in its extreme form. If this doesn't get their attention, nothing will. Jesus is saying, you may not see it now, but eventually down the road, you will find that being my disciple will at some point come in conflict with some other love in your life. That loving me will sometimes be in competition with some of your deepest allegiances. For some of you, it might be your mother or your father. For some of you, it might be your spouse. For some of you, it might be your, even your children. And when those choices are before you, you're going to have to choose and if you're going to be my disciple, you have to choose me first. And so this language of hate is actually simply a, a language of competing allegiances. It's, it's what do you love the most? It's also this covenant kind of language that God uses all the way back in the Old Testament where God lays out for his children Israel, hey, you can choose my way or you can choose your own way, but at the end of the day, you're going to make a choice. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. Meaning, what are you going to love the most? What is most important to you in your life? If you're just here to see the show, if you're just here to kind of be a part of the crowd and, and enjoy then it's, it's not, you're not going to make it. The calling I'm calling to you, to you to do and to be a part of is something deeper and more real. Last June, I believe, um, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the Allied invasion of, of, at Normandy, the beaches of Normandy. And I remember reflecting on that a little bit and just thinking, that the reality of, of those men who stormed the beaches of Normandy is, is really beyond my ability to even grasp. I marvel, I'm appalled, I, I'm just amazed at the sacrifices that so many people would make. So many people went into that battle knowing there was a very high percentage chance they were not going to come out of there alive. In that invasion, in the efforts of that war, men had to leave behind mother and father. They had to leave behind spouse. They had to leave behind even their own children. And today, when we look back at that, we honor that, don't we? We, 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 we hold that up as a great example of sacrifice and bravery. And we say, wow, some, some people gave so much for the country. Some people gave so much for the cause of, of good. Now, did they love their family any less? No. 
But they just knew that they had to do this, didn't they? Part of it is everybody knew. Nobody, nobody wants to go to war. Nobody wants to give these things up. And it, it might be a little easier when you have an evil regime threatening to take over the world. It may be a little harder for us to see that. Well, what does that mean to follow Jesus in that way? What does that look like to give up our allegiance to mother and father, spouse and children, for Jesus and for his kingdom? Jesus goes on. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Cross-carrying was only done by criminals, extreme criminals, on death row who were about to be crucified. This imagery would have likely have been very strange to people to think that they were a part of this cross-carrying. Most of the crowds wouldn't have even had a clue that Jesus was going to die. And even the inner group, the group of 12, where Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. First of all, it doesn't seem that they know that he's going to even be killed on a cross, for one. Second of all, they seem to be in denial about the fact that Jesus is going to die, period. And yet Jesus says, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Here we have Jesus speaking in the extremes Yet again. Now we have the, the perspective of hindsight. We can look back and say, oh yeah, Jesus died on a cross. He's telling them about the cross. We can now see that, you know, there, there's some context for that. But our translation today fails us. We, we read this out of the New Revised Standard Version. And if you go back and you look at the original language, it doesn't just say, whoever does not carry the cross. In the original language, it says, Whoever does not carry his cross, whoever does not carry one's cross, your cross. This means that we all have our own personal cross. There is a cross with your name on it. And it is your cross. It's not my cross. I'm not going to carry it for you. I've got my own cross to carry Jesus isn't going to carry it for you. It it is your own cross. And the choice for you and for me is, at least is what we see here, is that we can pick that up and carry it, or we can let it be. But Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you carry your own cross. You know, I think there's a, a temptation in at least American Christianity and that temptation is, is that we simply become consumers, consumers of religious goods and services. I call this, and, and a lot of people call this, consumeristic Christianity. And in consumeristic Christianity, the, the focus is ultimately about me, about me being freed from the things that bother me, about me having my way, about me finding my myself and my peace and my good and my blessing and all that. It's taking the things that are talking about the blessing and the goodness and the peace and the kingdom of God and somehow turning that and using that for me. This is always, in my mind, very complicated. A lot of our Christianity and our world is about avoiding discomfort as much as we can, trying to just get around everything that causes discomfort in life, anything that bothers us, and using 
Scripture or using Jesus to just make me feel good. Consumeristic Christianity. It kind of is this thing where I get slid into the center. And God really exists for me. I think churches, I think preachers, um, I think we have to be careful about that. We have to be careful about, uh, is this all about me? Or do I get to be a part of something bigger than myself? I think we have to be careful of that with our kids and with our grandkids and how we're raising them and what we're teaching them and what we're showing them and what we're leading them. In other words, we need a stronger cross-bearing theology. On one hand, there's something about carrying your own personal cross that's repulsive, isn't it? I mean, who wants to pick up a cross? What does that mean? And yet, at the same time, there's something that's appealing as well. That old hymn that talks about the old rugged cross, so rejected and despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. Have you considered yourself looking at the cross with your name on it? What does that look like? What does that mean? When we carry our cross, we are participating in the work of God. For it is only through cross-bearing that Christ became the Savior of the world. It is only through Christ bearing the cross that God did His work in Him. And it is only through us as we carry our crosses that God will do His work through us. That can take a lot of different forms. Whoever does not carry the cross, your own cross, and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus continues on, and he tells a couple of examples. Examples about a person who is considering building a building, and one about a king who's considering going out to war. And, and his point in both of those is you really need to count the cost and see, can you do this? Can you finish this out? Throughout all this, he's holding the greatest competitors for our faith and holding it right in front of people's faces back then and I think still today. And those two main competitors are the competitors of our relationships and our possessions. Are those not the things that we cherish the most still today? Isn't isn't family like one of our highest values? Almost unquestioned. And yet, multiple times in the book of Luke, Jesus is saying, hey, the things you value the most, like family, might come in the way of your relationship with me. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's not, he's not telling you to love your family less. He's saying he wants you to love him more. That the calling to follow him is that big. It's that grand. It is that great. I have a minister friend who has a son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren. And for years, uh, his son has felt this calling of God in his life. And is a calling to go to Asia to be a missionary. And so he went off to school. He came back to Lubbock and this last spring ended up headed with his wife and 3.8 children. She was seven, eight months pregnant at the time that they went off on the mission field. And 
my friend and his wife, you know, that's not easy. No, that's not easy on anybody involved. And yet, his son chose God's calling on his life above even those family connections. It doesn't mean the son loved his father less or the father loved his son less, but it's a great example of somebody who's willing to give up something for this mission of God, this kingdom of God. The temptation for the rest of us is to look and say, oh, look how great they are. Look how great Mother Teresa is. Look how great, you know, whoever. And to put them on a pedestal, and it's tempting to kind of like them on that pedestal because it, it, it gives us a chance to kind of excuse ourselves, doesn't it? But Jesus calls us to give up things too. It may not be to go to Indonesia, but he does call us to give up our allegiance to the things of this world to follow him. You know, we're not going to fully untangle this knot today. But I think that's okay. Maybe you need to take your knot home and work with it. I, I can't tell you what Jesus is calling you to give up. I can't tell you exactly what that means for you to take up your cross, to count the cost. But as we look back on this passage, here's what I think this passage is really all about. If you get nothing else, get this. Jesus says three times in this passage, you cannot be my disciple unless you do these things. You cannot be my disciple unless you do these things. You cannot be my disciple unless you do these things. What does it mean to be a disciple? We're all disciples of something. We're probably disciples of many things. My oldest son, Dayton, is a disciple of Coronado football. To be a disciple means you give yourself over to something. You invest in something, and that something has an effect on you. I know my son's a disciple of Coronado football because I have to drop him off at 6.15 every morning. I know he's a disciple of Coronado football because I have to pick him up between 6 and 7 o'clock every night from the football field. I'm, I'm participating in that discipleship, and hopefully that that creates in him a sense of fortitude, a sense of courage, something of character, so that when life hits him in the face, he's going to be able to stand up and endure it. Because we're trying to raise up a generation of people here who have some sense of strength to them. And to a pretty good degree, I'm okay with that as a part of the Coronado football disciple-making program. Many of us are being discipled by these things right here. Do you know these are disciple makers? We spend more time on these than just about anything else. The stats bear it out. The younger you are, the more you look at this. You're being discipled by whatever's on here. There are Fortnite disciples. There are Fox News disciples. There are MSNBC disciples. There are CNN disciples. There are Facebook disciples. There are disciples. We are being discipled by the things we give ourselves over to. We're being discipled by the, the things that we allow to be poured into us. Things we give our effort and energy to. What are you being made a disciple of? You know, I, I, I've just thought about my third child. Our third child, Hudson, is uh, beginning the confirmation class today. We have confirmation every year here at First United Methodist Church, and we actually list their names on the banners. We, we, we create these big banners, all their names are on the banners, and we put them over in the sanctuary. 
And you can go over there, you can see their names on the banners at certain times of the, of the year. What's interesting to me, and this isn't a one-to-one comparison or anything like that, but, but what's interesting to me is six years later, when we have Senior Celebration Sunday at First United Methodist Church down the hall, to see the seniors and to look at the seniors and then to compare it to the list on the banner. And there are usually many more students who went through confirmation than there are who are graduating. Now, that could be some that move. There there could be all kinds of reasons for that. But one of those reasons might be that our young people are not getting enough faith in their life, faith that will last. One of those reasons might be that we're not telling them, by the way, this discipleship thing is not just one more thing in your life. It's not just like the chess club. It's not just like the sports club. It's not just like this little thing over here. Discipleship is real. If this, if this text today is a call to anything, it's a call to us as a church to make deeply rooted disciples whose faith will last, especially of our younger generation, because they are entering into a world that is more difficult than probably any of the worlds that we have experienced. There are more temptations. There are more trials. There are more challenges. Count the cost, says Jesus. Jesus is simply making the way. He's simply saying, look, this discipleship thing is not optional. This discipleship thing is not one little thing in your life. It is worth everything. Because Jesus is worth everything. How much is Jesus worth to you? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, this call to be your disciple, this calling to have you lead us, that our allegiance to you would be greater than even our allegiance to other people, or to our possessions causes us to pause and to reflect on our lives. It also causes us to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. We need your grace today. We need your forgiveness and we need your power to help us to be your disciples. Show us, O God, where we are putting people in front of you. Show us, O God, where we are putting the concerns of this world in front of your kingdom. Help us and empower us and enable us to see your kingdom, to be your disciples, and to follow you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.